According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes from the Scriptures. We are in Proverbs chapter 18 this morning. Proverbs 18, we're looking at the offended brother in verse 19. And we'll be looking at uh, verse 19 and verse 20. And verse 21. I don't expect we'll get past that. Looking forward to verse 22 though. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That is such a powerful truth and uh, have a lot of fun with that. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the truth of Your Word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. We thank You for the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We thank You, Father, for the the Christian walk that You've designed and how simple is it to walk humbly with our Lord. And Father, we, we do. We walk with You. We keep our eyes fixed on You. We just thank You for all that You are and all that You do in our life. So as we go through tough times and other testing circumstances, Father. Um, You're with us, and that's the best part of all. So thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for teaching us from your word. I pray that we learn it, that we understand it, and that we live it. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, as we've been looking at the offended brother, this is what we talked about a week ago. It's point seven in the outline. Well, what do we mean by offended the verb is a verb of transgression, and uh, this is what really we want to break down and understand, that the offended brother is the one who, uh, against whom has, he has been transgressed. And this is not the, uh, the offense that we have in our culture today where everybody's offended about everything, and it's so easy to offend somebody, and you just say something wrong and they're going to be offended, and it's, somehow it's your fault because you should have known um, and, and we live in this insane day and age, and I hope it doesn't last very much longer. I'd be g- glad to have it over and done with. But uh, that's, that's where we are. That's not where Proverbs 18 is. All right? This text is not there. The idea that's being presented here is in being offended that you have been transgressed against. And this is why we take the time to understand the difference between sins and transgressions, that a pasha is a transgression. When we look at the Hebrew verb here, pashat, the verb is 6586, is the strongest concordance number, pashat. And pashat is is a transgression, the verb to transgress. Very related to the term for sin, and oftentimes they're used in tandem. So you have sins and transgressions that are used in many different verses. In fact, 51 out of the 134 places that that, uh, you have pashat, you have the combined expressions both in the same in the same verse. Uh, you have, so you have the, the verb, you have the noun, and uh, I'm not going to reteach this all today because it's what we looked at a week ago, but understand this is what happens with respect to a transgression, that our sin is against God. Whatever sin you commit is against God. Even murder is against God. And yes, there's a human being that you murdered, and so there is a victim to your murder, but you didn't sin against your murder victim or adultery or stealing or um, you know, pick any sin. I didn't mean to go extra gruesome this morning, but uh, David committed adultery and David committed murder. 
and Uriah was the victim in both cases, right? Because Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. We say he's the innocent party, the victim of the, of the uh, adultery. But he didn't sin against Uriah. Psalm 51 says against you and you only have I sinned. And we recognize that. God is the only uh, standard of righteousness. It's His standard. When all have sinned, we're falling short of the glory of God. We're not falling short of the glory of Uriah or uh, another human being or anybody. Okay, That's what the transgression addresses. So sinning against God, which is also a transgression and may very well be a transgression against another human being. And so a person who's been transgressed against is the offended party having been offended here in this verse, in Proverbs 18, 19. And in which case then, it makes it harder to win him over. It makes him harder to win him back. It makes him harder to, to, um, to, to broach the defenses than a strong city. And much of what we do when we're looking at the poetry here in verse 19, uh, thankfully we have an A part and a B part. And the B part can help explain the A part if the A part is a little bit unclear. Um, and in this case, look at all those words in italics. Do you have all those italic words in your English Bible? Where it says, is harder to be one. That was you? Okay. <laughs> I thought I was hearing something. I failed my hearing test last week at the VA, so you'll all be good to know that I return on December 23rd for uh, two hearing aids. Yes, one for each ear. The doctor said, uh, uh, I'm, I'm okay on the lower ranges, so if you have any friends with real deep voices, bass singers and whatnot, I get along great with Jacob. Uh, but then the doctor said, uh, your wife probably uh, it drives you up a wall. I said, it doesn't bother me at all. But I think I'd, I think, uh, I'd probably irritate her quite a bit. <laughs> all right, so you can pray for that as uh, I keep getting older. All right, so we're talking about sins and transgressions. So a believer who's been transgressed against, you got to, you know, uh, how much grace do they have? How mature are they? Uh, how are they going to deal with this? And even with a lot of doctrine and even with a lot of maturity and grace, it still hurts and there's still a human being involved that's going to have to make a choice to, to respond in grace, to not return evil for evil and to forgive. And even in the best of circumstances with a mature believer and a ton of doctrine and a lot of grace and a willingness to forgive, it doesn't make it easy, all right? There still is going to be the obstacles to overcome. There's still going to be that dynamic. And this is what happens because we're talking about a broken relationship. We're discussing the consequences of a broken relationship. And something like trust that, that takes a lifetime or years and years to be building up and then it's broken in, in a single event can break it. And then how long does it take to restore that? And even with forgiveness there still is going to be the long-term consequences whereby it requires that time to reestablish and to rebuild the, uh, the trust. And so those are the things we deal with. So all those italic words, is harder to be one, none of those are in the Hebrew text. All right, those are all just supplied. 
because the Hebrew text only has the word a brother offended than a strong city. A brother offended than a strong city. And that's how Hebrew puts comparatives. That's how Hebrew puts comparatives, superlatives, how it puts descriptions in, a, in some kind of a ratio or a proportion. You have something and then something that's more than, right? And so then just you have to kind of fill it in yourself and your own thinking and your own language and your own idea. So a brother offended is more what? More than a strong city. Okay, and so we, we can imagine. So then you, uh, then you imagine, you consider, well, what are the qualities and characteristics of a strong city? And, and what might an offended brother be more than, less, or greater than, or tougher than, or harder than, or superlative to? And so I don't mind, the, I think the language harder to be one is, is fine. Uh, or more difficult to enter into, <laughs> more uh, tougher to relate with. Uh, um, it, it's an easier task to go conquer someplace than it is to restore fellowship with a brother that you've harmed. And uh, because the, in some cases the, the worst person in the world to try to do that is the one that did the harm in the first place. Okay, And uh, that's the, the parallel there. And then the second item which kind of builds on that, is uh, contentions are like the bars of a citadel. And in the B part of this verse, there's less of the italics and there's less of the words that we have to kind of fill in ourselves with our own context. Uh, the contentions are like the bars of a citadel. And so now we can ask, you know, the, the point that's being made here is that uh, in parallel with a strong city is this citadel how many extra bars do we want to put in there before we try to break into the place? <laughs> you know, um, if, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a magician, a stage magician who, um, you know, puts so many, you know, puts himself in a straight jacket and then wraps up the straight jacket with chains and then puts padlocks on the chains. And then, you know, each layer of, of the, of the magic trick, each layer is supposedly, you know, making it harder and harder for him to escape, right? And so the straight jacket by itself and then the chains and then the padlocks and then put them in a box and then put the box underwater. I mean, just whatever, okay? Each layer that you're adding to the level of difficulty is causing the audience to be much more impressed with, ooh, this guy just escapes. He's a Houdini. He can escape from whatever, okay? And so you make it more hard to be you know, impressive in a magic show Um, But adding more bars to a citadel that's already hard enough to break into because of the first part of the verse, because the brother's been offended, because he's been sinned against, transgressed against. And so already there's going to be difficulty breaking in or difficulty uh, overcoming that. And now you're just making it worse with every contention that, uh, that you're just adding fuel to the fire. So stop the contentions now, <laughs> okay? Because it's hard enough as it is. Stop the contentions now. So um, before I move on to the contentions, did we cover all of those transgression verses last week, even all the way to Micah and Daniel and some of those? I think we did, because Daniel 9 was the prophecy of 70 weeks, 77s, and I remember we talked about the uh, transgression there. 
and Micah. I just don't remember if we covered Micah or not. We probably did. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Yes. Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? Those are the transgressions. Shall I present my firstborn for my uh, pashak or pashaim, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? So it's another dynamic pairing between transgressions and sins. So he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The answer is not legalism or religiosity. The answer is a relationship with Jesus Christ and a daily walk with Him. All right, so now we can look at the madon, madon, contention. And I don't know if you, (laughs) I don't know. Why, whenever I read madon, I think Rachel Maddow. And I just, I I don't know why I think that. It just happens. I'm not, I don't watch that network. I don't typically tune into that network. Um, but the idea of madown and contention, if that helps you remember it, maybe it's useful. Um, there's certain personalities that like to argue and have contentions. M-A-D-O-W-N, Madon. Strong's number is 4066. Has only 16 uses, so it's uh, much shorter of a study than the uh, Pashak Peshak study. Uh, only 16 uses. And what we're going to notice, though, is what a madon is. Um, the idea of Dean and Dana, Daniel, some of those names, the tribe of Dan, all of those Dan expressions speak of judgment, speak of discernment or judging. Uh, Daniel means that God is my judge, for example. Uh, so judging is appropriate when we uh, have God's discernment, when we are rightly dividing the word of truth and so forth. Uh, But then when you are inappropriately judging, when you are inappropriately putting a division where there shouldn't be a division, when when it's not godly discernment but human um, perspective that's creating a division, that's not appropriate, that's not right, that's not what we're called to do. And this is fundamentally what, we, what we're looking at when we, uh, in the Old Testament, and we are looking at the, the term here of madon. This contention is the judging or the slash division of those who ought not be contended with. They ought not be contended with. And uh, one thing that jumps out at me right away when I look at the uh, 16 uses here is, uh, wow, they're all in Proverbs. <laughs> oh, look at that. You know, um, I think it's a big deal when you have all of those uh, instances in the same book of the Bible. Like, uh, it becomes a point of emphasis related to that. And so, here we are sitting here this morning in uh, Proverbs eighteen nineteen, and we happen to notice uh, that this uh, expression actually came up three times prior to today. <laughs> that uh, we've already encountered this little rascal uh, on three previous occasions in this study, and uh, I don't remember making a big deal out of it on those occasions. Uh, I don't recall that we even referenced it from the pulpit on those occasions. Uh, but we've already covered fifteen, eighteen, sixteen, twenty-eight, seventeen, fourteen, 
and then uh, several more here to go. So let's take a look at these and see uh, how they relate to our passage this morning. Remember the passage this morning, contentions are bad because they're just making matters worse. I've already offended, and now the contentions are adding bars to the citadel. And so the contention is not helping anything. You're not solving anything, even if you win the argument. Maybe you're the best contender out there, and you can out-debate anybody, and you can win all these arguments. You're just making matters worse with the one that you've transgressed against. That's... uh, Proverbs 18, 19. All right. Well, backing up then to Proverbs 15, and we'll see the rest of these here this morning. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. Remember that? But the slow to anger calms a dispute. The slow to anger calms a dispute. And so the, uh, the strife and the dispute, when we're talking about the contention, uh, why are we even having it? What's the, what's the point? If, uh, is, is it necessary? Does it honor the Lord? Why are we, uh, I mean, <laughs> there's just certain personalities that feel like they were placed on this earth to highlight uh, other people and their incorrect views. And they love it. They, they love pointing fingers and saying, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And, you know, I mean, there's a place for that, I suppose, depending but everything with everybody all day every day you know you start to pray for a personality like that and say okay <laughs> what's uh, what are you accomplishing well in any event the hot tempered man and that's not honoring to the lord and that's not even imitation of christ now god has a temper but he's slow to anger we're told and that's what we're to emulate as it says here, the slow to anger calms a dispute. Keep in mind, God does apply wrath eventually. It's not never to anger. Slow to anger is not never to anger, and the wrath of God does get expressed. Just gets expressed not too soon, and that's His grace and His glory to, uh, to guarantee. Proverbs 16 then, in verse 28. A perverse man spreads madone. A perverse man. Here's a pervert, Okay? We're not allowed to talk about perverts anymore, but our society is full of them. Sexual perverts and doctrinal perverts and other kinds of perverts. A pervert spreads madone, strife, and a slanderer separates intimate friends. Remember who the the original slanderer is? That's Satan. Satan's the diabolos. He's the slanderer. And human beings that are imitators of Satan, that are of their father the devil, doing the things that their father has done from the beginning, uh, look at what they're really accomplishing here. The separating of the intimate friends. What we call friendship death. Death is a separation. Friendship death. And you can kill a friendship more quicker than anything with these kind of contentions, with these kind of slanders. Proverbs 17 and verse 14. The beginning of Madon is like the beginning of strife, is like letting out water. You know, it's like poking a hole in the dam. It's just the first little thing, and then as soon as that first little bit comes out, look out, because it, it's all coming right behind it, right? That one little hole in the dam is going to burst, and then the whole thing comes behind it. And so the admonition here, we're looking at seventeen fourteen. 14, um, abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. The, uh, the, best, the best argument is the one you choose not to have to start with. 
Just don't even go there. What are you really doing anyway? What's going to accomplish? And you, know, you poke that little hole and then you just exploded the whole thing. So uh, why are we doing that? Of course, chapter 18 and verse 19 is where we are this morning. We can skip that. Go back to uh, chapter 21 then. <coughs> we'll go forward. Proverbs 21 and verse 19. <coughs> and I think it's interesting, when you look at this list from 15 to 29, I don't know if it jumps out at you or not, but none of these are in the first nine chapters. None of these are in the parental wisdom portion of the book which I love, okay? Because anyone that's ever raised children knows that children fight, they argue, they contend. You know, if, if an only child, of course, has to find other partners to do that with. <laughs> but if they have siblings, then they can fight amongst themselves. And it's curious to me that the doctrine of contention, the doctrine of strife, the killing of friendships, the killing of relationships and those kind of things, this doctrine is not presented in chapters 1 through 9. I think that's kind of neat. Which means that, you know, the squabbles, sibling squabbles, fights, stuff like that, just little stuff between kids, they get over it. They get past it. They can, uh, you know, I love my sister more than anything in the world, and uh, if you would have asked her that, in the mid-1980s, <laughs> she would have uh, had other things to tell you, okay? But it's, this is all part of the grace. And so, yeah, so tough things growing up between siblings, you get over that, you grow through that, you grow up, they grow up. Most of it was her fault anyway. And uh, <laughs> not true, all right, not true at all. And so you become adults. And now here's the thing, in adult capacity... If you can't patch up that childhood stuff, that's where you're in defiance of the Word of God. That's why we have this Madon vocabulary in starting in chapter 15 and going all the way to the end of the book in 15 through 29. Because in an adult capacity, you've got to get past that. You've got to glorify Jesus Christ. All right, so uh, chapter 21 and verse 19 it is better to live in a desert land than with <laughs> Rachel Maddow. Okay, Madon, a contentious and vexing woman. All right, a contentious. You don't want, marriage is not designed to be contentious. Contentions can happen. They do happen because, of course, a marriage is consisted of two sinners and the two become one flesh and there will be contention. It does happen, but deal with it. Get past it. Have grace and love one towards another. And because uh, otherwise the option is uh, the, the desert land is preferable than uh, this contentious and vexing woman. 22.10 Have I not written to you? Nope, long verse. 22.10 Drive out the scoffer and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. Now this is a benefit too because there's you recognize that attitudinally this scoffer has issues that are underlying the, the contentions and underlying the strife and underlying everything else that follows. And it starts with scoffers. It starts with their attitude to the Word of God. And they're mocking God. They're mocking His Word. They're scoffers. 
We see them in various places in Proverbs as well. And you don't need that. Who needs that? Get rid of that. That's, that's damaging to your flock. That's damaging to, to um, any relationship. Get rid of them. And you'll find with their departure comes a marvelous peace. It comes a tremendous, it's like the, the blessed uh, subtractions that sometimes happen uh, in, uh, in different ministries at different times. And you find, wow, the contention's gone, the strife is gone, the dishonor is gone. Just said goodbye to that one scoffer and a lot of benefits followed. All right, so there's the, the principle there. Uh, chat is 22.10, how about 23.29? Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? That's an awful lot of questions. Are they all rhetorical or can we answer? Well, in a sense, we all do, right? One time or another. But then, how do we make it, how do we solve it or how do we make it worse? Those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine. So you're just making it worse. You're not solving the, uh, the issues. But hey, if you think that uh, getting drunk will take care of all your problems, <laughs> you're not the first to come up with that idea. But it just gets worse. So those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. You know, if you're just staring at your drink and playing with it, and it's, boy, it sure is sparkly and pretty. You've been looking at that wine too long, and you've been drinking too much. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things. Yeah, we should have cut you off two or three drinks ago. Your mind will utter perverse things. You'll be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. <laughs> when, when shall I awake? I will seek another drink. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, it's amusing. We can chuck a little bit as we read it, but it's not amusing when you realize this characterizes how many people. I mean, this is the life of the drunk. This is the, the uh, and, and it's not an answer. I mean, is, does, it, does it solve his woe? Does it solve his contentions? Does it solve his, his um, complaining and wounds? And it doesn't solve any of that. Psalm 25 and verse 24. Now when we get into 25 through 29, now we're in the additional Proverbs that were compiled in the days of Hezekiah. They were not a part of the first edition of the book of Proverbs as it was first canonized in the days of of, uh, Solomon. But subsequently canonized in the days of Hezekiah. And... um, 25-24 says it is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Very similar to what we saw in chapter 21. Contentious woman. Contentions in marriage. Contentions in the family. Not good things. 
chapter 26 and verse uh, 20 and 21. A pair of verses here. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. That makes sense. You ever build a fire, a campfire? You ever build a, you know, if, you, if you're running out of wood, what happens to the fire? <laughs> it stops. It's done. It's, it's, uh, it's a consumable energy. So you're burning the wood. It's great. Light, heat, warmth, cooking food, whatever you're doing. But it's finite in that as it burns, it's consumed. Okay? And so you've got to put more wood on it. If the fire is going to continue, you've got to put more wood on it. Well, this is now the, the imagery, the metaphor for describing these stupid contentions. Why are we feeding the fire? Why are we adding fuel? Why are we just pouring more, throwing another log on the fire, so to speak? Well, for lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. So certain personalities are like, uh, you know, gasoline to the fire. Certain personalities, in this case it's the whisperer, the gossip, the slanderer, contention quiets down. It's like taking, taking the wood away from a fire. Just let it, let it die. You know, there'll be some embers for a little bit, but just don't, just don't, you know, blow on the embers. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. Madon, okay? And so, unless you're, unless you're kindling it, unless you're blowing on it, unless you're adding fuel, unless you're working to keep it going, just let it go. Let it go. And that's kind of an interesting thing as far as, you know, the passing of time and the dwindling of the flame and the dying of the contention. You know, if you take the time to just give it time to let it die. Don't add another bar to the citadel. Don't add another log to the fire. Don't stoke it. Don't be blowing on the, blowing on the embers. So there's kind of the imagery there too of, of whispering and blowing and kindling the, uh, the embers. Anyway. Because an argument doesn't have to be loud. You don't have to win with volume. It could be that, that tiny little weasel voice that comes in and drives the knife in deeper. All right. Chapter 27, verse 15. A constant dripping. Drip, 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 drip. On a day of steady rain. And <laughs> the Madon woman, the contentious woman, are alike. Like Chinese water torture, just with that drip, 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 drip. All right. Does it bother you that so many of these are female-oriented in the language? Can we not turn it around to the men just as well? Of course. Absolutely. Men can be just as contentious as women. You want to argue about me? Argue about that? We can, we can argue. <laughs> there are contentious men, of course. But the uh, Proverbs are presenting it in the feminine vulnerability with quite, uh, quite a significant frequency there. Might be a reason for that. Chapter 28, verse 25. 
and I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on these things, but um, I do know that men and women are different. That's biblical. And I do know that um, in my eight years working in the jail that there was a tremendous difficulty with um, the women inmates as opposed to the men inmates. And it all came down to um, the, the personalities, the, the, the grudges they would hold, the, uh, just the psychological makeup of men versus women. It was noticeably different. And and we would have lists the 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 don't mix and match list, um, and, and and usually it was because of something um, crime oriented something um, they had they were in different gangs or they had different physical things um, one of them was a one of them murdered the sister of another one so yeah we keep those people apart that's a that's a keep apart list you know. Um, but for the male inmates, it was pretty short. For the female inmates, the list just went on and on and on and on. And the keep separate list was usually over personality things. Um, they just they didn't like each other. They wouldn't get along. They, um, you know, too many of them tried to be the the queen bee and control the unit and control the tank and and boss everybody else around and. And, uh, and, and you would have this long list. You'd have a, a single female inmate with 17 separate other female inmates that, that you had a, we don't have that many tanks. You know, you can't, you can't keep them all, you can't give them all their own personal jail. What are you going to do? So, and then with a man, it's the funniest thing in the world. They could have an argument, they could be mad at one another, and, and one of them would throw a punch Give a guy a black eye, and then, hey, we're done. They'll sit down and play dominoes, you know. And the guy that got socked was like, "Yeah, it's all right, you know. I deserved it, <laughs> you know. I'll get him next time." And and they they totally they're cool. They're buds. They're just you know play, sitting down playing dominoes and like, you just slugged this guy. Yeah, that's all right. So, those kind of things. Are curiosities to me, and I think about them a lot. I'm not going to forget that jail experience, but um, anyway, back to the scriptures. 28:25. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. And I think that builds. I mean, that gives us a lot of what we need to know from some of those previous chapters as well, is that what is it that, that instigates all this strife? What is it that instigates the contention? It's arrogance, it's pride, it's, it's uh, an attitude, what here is described as arrogant, that just puts self at the center of everything. Whereas humility, walking with the Lord, trusting the Lord, that doesn't put self at the center of everything, it puts Jesus at the center of everything. I think it makes all the difference in the world. Finally, uh, chapter 29 and verse 22. An angry man stirs up strife. A hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. So this is good. It's got both our transgression vocabulary and our strife vocabulary there, the contentions. And so it's the judging slash division contention of those who ought not to be contended with we're putting, we're, we're making issues where they shouldn't even be issues. 
we're striving, we're contending, we're drawing lines in the sand and, and throwing down the gauntlet. And why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? This is a person for whom I should not be doing that. This is a person for whom I should be like-minded. We should be brothers, we should be friends, we should be in the Word of God together. And uh, issues like that. All right. We get past 20, uh, verse 19 and we get to verses uh, 20 and 21. Back to Proverbs 18, verses 20 and 21. And now uh, we reach a couple of verses that's going to get make us hungry because we have fruit, we have food, we have eating. With the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach will be satisfied. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So these two verses come together. Poetically they're linked, conceptually they're linked. We have fruit in both verses. We have eating in both verses. And um, it's actually pretty frightening when when it comes to it. This intriguing proverb indicates a frightful idea. And maybe it's not frightful yet until you process and think it through. (laughs) While frequently mentioned that we eat the Word of God, that's a lot of places in Scripture, Proverbs 18 indicates that we also eat our own words. We also eat our own words. Now that's kind of idiomatic and as, uh, as we typically use it in our culture, uh, eating your own words is, is uh, not pleasant. Eating your own words is kind of like uh, you said something you regret and now you've got to kind of deal with it, right? Eating your own words. Well, Proverbs is declaring it, but it's declaring it in a, in a positive way. We want to eat our own words. We want to eat our own words. What do I mean by that? Well, we're producing fruit as we speak. Either good fruit or bad fruit. We're either edifying one another in a good way or we're tearing one another down. That's why it says life and death in verse 21. The tongue can be used for great things. The tongue can be used for terrible evils. But as we speak, the things we say the fruit that we bear needs to be eaten, and the people we're talking to will certainly be eating it, but they're not the only ones eating it. We also, we also eat it. And that's what makes it, it's, it's pretty unusual. It's not unique to this verse, but it's not as explicit as this verse in the other places where we might infer the idea. I brought this up uh, a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, when uh, we were talking about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? Why is it called fruit? And what do you do with that fruit? Let's say you have love, joy, peace. Let's say you're very productive in the fruit of the Spirit department, and you and your Christian walk, you're producing all this fruit, then what? Well, you eat it, don't you? I mean, what do you do with that fruit? Should you not consume it? Or do you just produce fruit and then lay it around and look at it? Okay? No. If, if you've produced the fruit, you should eat it. 
And, and those you've produced the fruit with can also eat it. You partake of it together. With your brothers and your sisters in Christ as you're producing this fruit. And so they can eat it, you can eat it, and we just have a great uh, diet of fruit. See, it goes well with our diet of meat, it goes well with our milk, and goes well with everything else we're consuming from the Word of God. The idea that we eat our own words is also interesting because it's like the kind of it's like the, the the cook in the kitchen that's snacking at the stove, right? You know, and I, I've seen it. I know what happens. My mother did it. My wife did it. I I don't cook, but um, I would if I I would snack if I cooked because I like to eat. All right. Well, let's uh, take a look at some of these here too. Because eating our own words, you know what that means? That means, by the way, if you're a preacher, this is real doubly fearful. Because <laughs> I mean, if you're a preacher, you gotta you, you you talk for a living. I mean, you're 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 constantly putting words out there. You gotta eat those words. You can't say something that you're not living. You can't preach something that you're not practicing. So everything you're preaching, you gotta be eating it too, right along with. I mean, you expect. Your flock is just going to eat, eat everything up and, and you're not going to be eating it also? Of course not. You've got to be eating it too. Which is good for the good fruit, but there's also, for the bad fruit, it's going to have some consequences. You eat a bad fruit, it's not going to sit well in the stomach. You're going to have other consequences. Designed, that, this metaphor is designed to go that direction too. Okay? If you eat a sour apple or sour grape and your teeth are set on edge. and Well, so let's start with the uh, obvious because the Word of God is frequently used in an eating metaphor. Psalm 119. Well, frequently mentioned that we eat the Word of God, and we do. Psalm 119 and verse 103. This is in the meme strophe. But it says, um, verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste. The psalmist is speaking to the Lord. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Okay, pretty good. I like it. I want to take in the Word of God. And it's sweet. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen. Another example. Jeremiah 15, 16. Verse 15 says, You who know the Lord, remember me. Take notice of me. And take notice for me on my persecutors. Do not, in view of your patience, take me away. Know that for your sake I endure reproach. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I have been called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Your words became for me a joy. So your words were found and I ate them. We are consuming the word of God. It's it's a metaphor, but we recognize that we're studying, we're learning, we're growing. We are appropriating by faith. Eating is a faith metaphor. So that means that we're learning the word of God and by faith we are internalizing it. 
By faith, we are consuming it. We're devouring it. We're, uh, we're, we're nourished by it. So that as we swallow this, it's, it's strengthening us. It's building us up in the inner man. We're being nourished. We're being strengthened. But you have to devour it. You have to eat it. You have to embrace it by faith. You can't just simply approach it uh, intellectually minus faith. That doesn't process anything. You know, it's, it's like sniffing at it. It's like smelling it. You know, maybe the kitchen does smell great. And you walk through and you go, but how nourishing is that? No, you've got to sit down. You've got to eat it. That's when you're going to gain the, the calories and the nutrition and the, the value of the meal. I mean, smelling it's nice. But until you eat it, until you devour it, you're not taking it in. Hebrews 5, of course, the milk and meat contrast. I could start with 1 Peter 2 2. That's the milk verse of like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. And every babe starts with that. And that's, you know, you're not going to throw a prime rib in front of a newborn. What would they do with that? They're going to start with breast milk, they're going to start nursing. So that's 1 Peter 2, 2. But at some point, you've got to grow up. And Hebrews 5 says you're past that point. So uh, he introduces Melchizedek here, and, uh, which becomes a huge theme in Hebrews, as we know. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. There's a hearing issue that's going to keep the readers from uh, the recipients from processing Melchizedek doctrine. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You're not ready for Melchizedek doctrine because you're still trying to get a handle on the essence box. You're trying to get a handle on the basic doctrines of, of what it means to be saved. For everyone who partakes only of milk so I missed a part there, verse 12. Uh, elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. So this is the issue here. If, you, if your growth is stunted, or even if you regress back to a, an infantile existence, then you're going to have to get nursed back to, uh, to where you should be. And that's going to be milk again. So you get nursed back to health. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. He is an infant. But solid food is for the mature. And let me tell you, God does not want to populate heaven with a bunch of babies forever. He wants us to grow up. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice, I love that, it's not just the quantity of doctrine you academically learn. It's the practice that you are taking what you're learning and you are putting it into application. Because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so you become spiritually mature and you grow. And uh, you're able to add solid food to your diet. You're not breastfed your entire life. You get the solid food. So we have meat doctrines. We have milk doctrines. First Peter 2.2 2 is the, the milk again. And so, all right, so we get that. We get the idea that the Word of God is to be eaten. Well, what about the Word of man? That's to also to be eaten. 
because the verbal fruit that's born is consumed. It's consumed by the hearer and it's consumed by the speaker. That's the most frightening part of all, that we do eat our words. Proverbs 18, 20, and 21, of course, is our text today. Talking about how delightful they are. With the fruit of a man's mouth, the stomach is satisfied. Well, how does that happen? Okay, the idea of, because the mouth produced it. The mouth is a speaking device. But then the mouth is also an eating device. Does this bother any of us? It's kind of, anyway. It's mixing the metaphor, but it does it not just here, it does it in a lot of places. Okay. In fact, if you go back and look at your notes from chapter 12, we kind of did a similar illustration. And I have resisted, by the way, I have resisted some of the more gruesome things I could illustrate with. Okay? With insects and with other creatures in creation, even with humans. I'm not going there. Okay? Radley's smiling because he knows what I'm talking about. All right. <laughs> But you're satisfied. Man, that's good fruit. That's a great apple. That's a great banana. That's a great one. I'm fond of apples because of where I grew up. But, you know, whatever fruit you like to eat, you like mangoes or whatever, I don't care. Whatever fruit you like to eat, think, wow, that tastes great. And so it's satisfying. He will be satisfied with the product of his lips. Because we get to produce this fruit in the things that we say. And the things that we say reflect our heart. So we want to have a good heart. We want to have our heart shaped by the Word of God. So that in the things that we say, man, that's good fruit. And that good fruit, you know, not only is my brother going to be edified by it, I'm edified by it. I'm just, wow, smacking my lips, thinking, hmm. It's a good taste. It's a good aftertaste. It's, uh, man, it's, it's a thrill to be able to fellowship in these things. But not just the good fruit, also the bad fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. You can say some ugly things. You can tear somebody down. And instead of building them up with a message of life, you can tear somebody down with a message of death. And that's uh, it's horrible. It's going to bring about a friendship death. It's going to bring about a, you know, the separation of fellowship. It's going to bring about an operational death in your carnality before the Lord. It's going to bring about other forms of of death. And it's going to be a dead fruit. Because it's not a, it's it's still a productive thing. It's but what it's producing is a dead fruit. And it's a dead fruit that God makes you eat. Think about it. Because you hurt somebody else with your hurtful word, who else are you hurting? You're actually hurting yourself with these damaging things that you're saying. With these dead words that you're producing, these dead fruits that you're producing. You know. <laughs> Sometimes you bring a bunch of bananas home and there's just too many. And the first one's not quite ripe, the second one's ripe, the th- next one is, you know, you don't you only eat. I mean you could eat the whole thing in a day, but I tend to eat one a day, and and then the longer, and then and then but you reach a point though where wait a minute, now it's overripe. Now this banana, I don't think I want to be eating this banana anymore. And then, uh, ooh, then it gets really gruesome. You can still use them for smoothies sometimes. But you wouldn't want to just eat the the raw banana. So death and life 
in the power of the tongue. And those who love it. Grammatically, it's a puzzle and we can ask, well, so are we loving the tongue? Are we loving the power of the tongue? Are we loving talking? Is this the person that just loves talking? There are some people that love talking. Well, a multitude of words, transgression is unavoidable. Maybe we can get by with fewer words and make sure that it's good fruit we're producing instead of just bombarding them with a everything imaginable. Back to chapter 12, Proverbs chapter 12, you might recall, and, the, and you have notes for this, we taught verses 13 and 14. And I don't know, and I didn't make comment, I don't, if I did I don't remember. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words. And I remember discussing satisfaction just on the value of being productive, on the value of contributing something, on the value of producing for somebody else. I don't know that I envisioned this at the time with the idea that I get to eat my own fruit also. It's not as explicit here in this verse as it is in chapter 18. But given that we have what we have in chapter 18, we can certainly infer it here in chapter 12. And um, so um, we have the fruit of the lips there. And even part of that, verse 13, an evil man is ensnared by the transgression of his lips. So it's a trap. He said something and now he's stuck. So he's ensnared. That's, I think, comparable to the metaphor of, of our chapter this morning. He has to eat his words. Here he's ensnared. His lips trapped him. There he's eating his words. I think it's the same, it's a different metaphor, but the same principle, the same concept. But the righteous will escape from trouble. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his words, and the deeds of a man's hands will return to him. Will return to him. Now there when we taught it, of course, deeds, when we're when we're productive, when we're producing, when we are profiting when we are accumulating wealth <clears throat> then of course there's a return in the sense of that and in, in the sense of an increased uh, portfolio or an increased uh, wealth but the idea of returning again put that in the word portion of the poetry satisfied the satisfied comes with the return the satisfied comes when you realize you're not, they're not the only ones eating what you're saying you're eating what you're saying also in the things that you say. Chapter 13 and verse 2. From the fruit of a man's mouth, he enjoys good. So the fruit is coming from him, but he also enjoys it. Not as explicit as chapter 18, but you can certainly infer it here. But the desire of the treacherous is violence. How about... Um, 1 Timothy 4 6. First Timothy 4 6. This is a warning. This chapter begins with a warning against apostasy. Paul is hoping to um, get uh, released from prison and come see uh, Timothy, but in case he's delayed, this epistle is being written so that uh, uh, the church can function. 
And we're told uh, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. And, and here we are, 21st century American Christianity and apostasy everywhere we look. And it's just demonic teaching. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The only thing worse than a liar is a hypocritical liar. <laughs> a demonic hypo- hypocritical liar. How about that? With uh, their conscience seared, it damages their soul. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. So you go to an ascetic lifestyle. You enforce celibacy on your priesthood. No wonder they got all the problems they've got there. And um, abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. It's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So thank the Lord, offer praise, and then feast okay, on anything you want to eat. Now, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith. Now pay attention here, because who's getting nourished? Timothy's getting nourished in the things that he points out, in the things that he teaches. Pointing out these things, you will be a good servant, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. So Timothy's pointing out these things. He's teaching other people in the church. Sure, they're getting fed, but who's getting nourished? This verse says Timothy's getting nourished. This is, this is the, 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 the cook who's snacking on the meal that he's cooking. And I do a lot more snacking than I do, um, you know, I prepare meals for the flock. Two meals Sunday morning, a meal Wednesday morning, a meal Wednesday night. But I eat a lot more than that. <laughs> All right, because it's, it's about 50, it's, uh, I figured it out once, it's, it's 45 hours in the mine and 11, 44 hours in the mine and 11 hours in the pulpit or in the church building. That's my 55-hour work week. And my 55-hour work week only includes 11 hours here on the premises. And that encompasses prayer meetings and everything else, deacons meetings or whatever else. But 44 hours in the mine, that's the study time. Roughly 10 to 1. 10 hours for each hour you preach. That's a lot of snacking. (laughs) And it's nourishing. It's nourishing. See, Randy Blair's excited because I'm going to, he's going to, teach for me on December 1st and he's already blessed because of all the study he's put into into, uh, what he's going to be teaching you guys. And that's how it works. Hebrews 13, 5 15, thank you. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Our lips produce fruit. Our lips produce fruit. Thank you for spotting that. It's verse 15. All right, Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. I pray that we are mindful of eating our own words, that uh, the things we say are bearing fruit. 
for you to be well pleased, for our brothers and sisters to be edified, and for ourselves to eat what we're speaking. So um, make this clear to each one of us, Father, and I thank you that we can produce the good fruit, not the bad fruit, that we can be eating the fruit of life and not choking down on the fruit of death. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.